This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. We are back with Take Two with Mr. John Borja. From the great state of California. And we're going to chat. John reached out to me. And I almost always tell people no when they reach out. Because they always are self-promoting when they're doing that. But this guy had a topic that sounded like it meant something personal to him that he wanted to talk about. And so I figured, why not chop it up on the podcast? I appreciate that, Dave. Yeah, man. So give everybody the intro. because. You did it little you did it the last time, but that was about all we got out of it before all and it wasn't just you, all of our technology died. Like Kyle had issues, I had issues after that. So whatever you gave us, man, it was we got we caught it from you. From California. Yeah. <laughs> it's that I'm, potent stuff. <laughs> and I'm kind of glad because I felt guilty that it was all on me. And uh come to find out that we all shared in the in the technology issue, but the but uh, yeah, I've been in the business about 15 years as an independent broker. I've uh, worked with uh, three different brokers brokerages now. This will be my third one here in San Diego County. Um, so I've, this will be my third time building a book of business um, from the starting line up again. That's tough, man. Yeah, I probably have a little bit more knowledge on building books of businesses now at the third try than at the first try. Well, I mean, realistically, man, you just described my life story too, because I started out at one firm and then a couple years in decided I, that didn't make sense. So I became a partner in another firm that didn't work out. And I was there for eight years and then launched Florida Risk six years ago. I actually worked at a small agency before I went and worked at the first middle market firm. So in theory, in almost 20, I've been in the industry 18 years at this point. In 18 years, I started one, two, three, four times. And I can um, assure you, this is the last time. There, there will not be another start over at this point because I don't have it in me, man. I'm going to be 50 years old next year and I can't run as hard as I ran six years ago. Can't run as hard as I could six days ago. But, you know, it's tough, man. In the agency wasn't any more difficult, honestly, because I'd already started the scratch book 
three times. It was a matter of getting the contracts and the ability to have something to write. And thankfully, I did have some level of success prior to launching my agency. So those calls to the carrier partners weren't as difficult when it came time to get my contracts. And I didn't get them with everybody, but I got them with enough that I could write with some people while we were getting launched. But good grief, man. I, I don't ever want to have to do it again. I've never had the benefit of long-term residual income since I've gotten in the industry because every three, four years on average, I'm having to go start over from scratch again for one reason or the other. Yeah, it's a, you know, the whole purpose of me communicating or reaching out was not just to talk about, you know, building books, but also the the, the larger appeal, you know, in our industry with appealing to new producers. And I know that agency principals struggle with attracting new producers. And I believe building books of business is a big appeal. But at the same time, the restart or revamp stage is the part that is very, very hard. And it kind of can be discouraging. You know, the fact that I have about 15 years experience gives me the confidence to want to rebuild a book of business. But let's talk about to someone who's been in it three to five and probably wants to restart somewhere else. They should be able to take their book or a portion of it and restart wherever they need to go and kind of reach the goals that they've set themselves to, to, to do. So that's kind of the reason why I want to reach out because I feel like at times our industry, in, at least in California, probably struggle with that reality of whose book it is, who does it belong to, what rights, you know, in California, we have a non-compete clause. So technically the book belongs to the, to the broker, but principles make it challenging for them to move their books of businesses. And at the same time, our industry has a access to the general public. So the perception with the general public, with our clients is, oh, well, this guy left, you know, there's this battle going on over the clients and, and then the clients kind of lose faith in the abilities of both brokerages and decide to move somewhere else, which is not really what we want to do from a community standpoint. We really want to be good in nature and good ambassadors of our business all the time. So that type of industry issues shouldn't be public when it comes out with our clients. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I look at this a couple of different ways, man, is, is an agency principal that's a recovering producer and I still produce. I have to kind of see both sides of the issue, right? So I'll give you an example for my own agency here. I'm not, I mean, non-compete is not even an issue. I don't care. You can, I mean, to me, there's two separate issues when you bring somebody on. You have a non-compete and then you have a non-piracy. They're two completely different things. Non-compete is very rigid. It means that you can't compete in the industry anywhere around within a reasonable radius. Those are largely non-enforceable in court. So they're basically not worth the paper they're written on. And I wouldn't ever want to bring somebody in and then be, and be punitive to them by making them sign an agreement like that prior to. Non-piracy is a different story because that does talk about the ownership of the book and how long you need to wait before you would go back after any accounts that were produced while you were under my roof. Now, let's talk about a couple of different forks in the road. Number one is if you're a 1099, that's handled differently. If you're a W-2 employee, 
you're going to play by my rules or you're not going to be a W-2 employee, right? Like that's just the way that it is. And, and what I mean by that is if I'm going to bring somebody in and have them produce with us in the agency, and let's just say they're here three or four years and they're finally getting the flywheel to catch and they're starting to get some business on the books. Many times we get bulletproof as producers thinking we can do all of that stuff, right? You know, we could, we could run the agency. Let's just go do our own or this person doesn't value me enough. So I'm going to get upset and I'm going to take my toys and go play in another sandbox or whatever else. Cause producers have egos. I know. I, I mean, I'm one of them. I'm the first one that will admit that. Right. But you know, I look at it from the agency principal standpoint and I'm thinking to myself, I've just invested three years worth of salary and everything else in this guy. And he wants to turn around and leave and he wants to take his book of business with him. That's not going to work. So what what's equitable and what I see most of the time and all of this needs to be done before the job is ever even offered, let alone accepted. But there has to be a path for that producer to have some level of ownership in the book. Just has to be, right? So that's the angle we take. I want everybody who comes into my firm to have the ability to have some level of ownership in their book of business. So if you're a producer, you know, the way that I've always seen it, and actually I'm, I'm not, I've seen it several different ways. What we've ultimately arrived at at my agency is we're just going to have some kind of an ESOP, an employee stock ownership plan that everybody, because I want my service people, salespeople, everybody's on a level playing field in my agency, number one. There is no role that's more important than the other. And I think that's a big issue in a lot of agencies, constant infighting between production and service. It's a nightmare. And so that that throws that out the window. But what I've seen in the past is I, you know, it, one firm specifically, I was able to vest in my book of business based on production. So when I got to $500,000 in revenue in my book, then I would own my book. And the agency had first right of refusal to buy that book from me if I wanted to leave. Okay, so if I'm going to sell it, I, can, I can't take it and sell it to the agency I'm going to. I have to give my agency first right of refusal and the offer is 1x revenue and they pay it out at 20% a year over five years. So if my book's 500,000 on the nose and I leave, I have a non-compete, non-piracy for the existence of the payout and I get $100,000 a year from that agency for five years. You can, un, you can slice and dice that any way you want. I don't know if it's a good deal, bad deal, what, but that's what I've seen in the past, right? But what's happening is that agency is also buying that revenue stream for a discount from the producer, right? So they're going to buy it at that discount rate because why? Well, this is a people business. You and I are the ones who make the relationships, right? There are relationships. And at the last agency that I, I was at, I offered them an opportunity for me to buy my book and the comment was made, well, good luck. We'll just see how good you are and you could go out and try and get it. Okay. Waited till my non-compete was up and the day after it was up, I AOR'd 100% of my book of business away from that agency. They had the ability to sell it to me. They wanted to be cute and they figured out that this is about the relationships that I as the individual have. So the real question is, how do we make it fair for everybody? Right. Well, with the understanding that we're at a deficit with respects to recruiting new producers. So the appeal has to appeal to the new era of producers. 
Yeah, so, but I think I don't think that's accurate because it may be a deficit where you're at, but I've got six producers in the wings waiting to come on board right now. Well, if you think about it, what are the average age of producers across America? It's about 51 years old. And we're having a new age of age force out there that we're not capturing. So I yeah, would the average person that I'm looking to bring in is 26 to 28. Right. But I would say you're in a special situation where you've appealed to a great demographic. But well, no, no, no. Don't let me let me explain something. There is nothing at all about me appealing. This is hard work on my end. This is a yeah, conscious yeah. effort yeah. for me to mine that. Right. So right. you don't know this about me, but I'm going to tell you that the way that I attract producers and the way that I hire producers is I make them referral partners to my agency first. So if you sell payroll, if you sell credit card processing, if you sell office supplies, when we go in and we bring on a client into Florida Risk Partners, one of the things we do is we have a profile sheet for that client that gets put into our CRM. And we want to know over the course of the first six months of the relationship, we're not going to go in and hammer them with a bunch of questions up front. But over the first six months of the relationship, we're going to get to know who else they're working with. We want to know who they're using as their banker, their attorney, their accountant. But more importantly, I want to know who the business to business salespeople are that are calling on my clients. Because I know that if they're calling on my client, they're calling on other people just like my client. Because you don't have a small business, business development representative calling on middle market accounts. Middle market representatives call on middle market accounts, which makes the middle market rep my new best friend, right? So we'll go in and we'll have a conversation and I'll ask my I'll ask my client, who do you use for this, this, and this? Do you think I would get along with this person? Great. Would you mind making an introduction for me? I'd like to meet them and see if there's some synergy there. They'll make the introduction. We have a coffee meeting. If they want to proceed, we set up a formal referral, a formal partnership for trading referrals, right? So let's just say I have a payroll person. Payroll people are some of my favorites because I know that if I look at a resume and somebody's been with ADP for five years, I'm, I don't even need to look at anything else. If you can last there for five years, you're going you're gonna to retire with me at that point because it's such a nonstop environment of sales activity. Plus, I also know that you got Fortune 500 sales training. I know what the expectations are for you hitting quota. And if you don't hit the numbers, you'd have been gone. So if you're there for five years, you're worth you're a good. mint to me, right? Yeah. So we set up a formal relationship and, I, and we end up meeting for coffee. And the, the deal is it's either every other week or once a month. I don't care. It, it can be whatever frequency you want it to be, but it has to be at least once a month, no more than every other week. But the goal is that every time we meet, Let's just say we're meeting once a month. You're going to come to that meeting with two booked appointments with your book of business. And I'm going to come to that meeting with two booked appointments for my book of business. Right? I don't mean, hey, David, this guy's expecting you to call. No, you're going to walk me into the conference room for a meeting that you have booked with your client who knows exactly why I'm there. And that's to talk about my value proposition to my firm. Just like I'm going to do the same courtesy for you as the payroll person. And so we do that. And if they come up, if they show up one month and they don't have their two appointments, they get one get out of jail free card. If they show up a second time, they're done. Yeah. Right. I, I, there's no, there's no point in it. So we refer the business back and forth for four or five months. And at that point, I'll know whether or not I like the person. Right. I mean, they can keep feeding me referrals if I don't like them and I don't think they're going to fit, fit in my company. I don't have to make them a job offer. I just need to make sure I like them first before I'm going to go down that road. And if I do like the person, I'm going to set I'm going to make sure that I set the hook with them. I'm going to I'm going to throw the bait out there and say, 
you're a really good salesperson. Why are you screwing around with payroll? I mean, not that you don't probably make good money, but my goodness, you're not getting residual income, not selling nearly the ticket high ticket item that middle market commercial is. You could make so much more doing something like I do. I just wondered why you were there. And people get defensive and, well, I, it pays the bills. I don't have any debt. We take nice vacations, blah, 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 blah. But within 24 hours, every single time within 24 hours, I get an email or a phone call that says, hey, bro, what were you talking about? Did you have an opportunity? You know, is there something I could do with Florida Risk or whatever? I'd be interested in talking. I mean, I always got to know what else is out there. And so I'll get back together with him and I'll bring the reports from our system and I'll say, look, you know, after the last over the last five months that we've been working back and forth with each other, you have referred to my agency $200,000 worth of revenue that we've closed as an agency. If you were a producer in my agency, you would have made $80,000 in the last five months. Are you making that kind of money doing what you're doing? Like that's getting close to $200,000 a year, right? And they never are. Let's say, well, tell me what you need and tell me what you want. I can show you how to get what you need, but you're going to have to go earn what you want. I don't, I'm not in the business of helping you earn wants. I'm giving you the platform, but that's up to you to go get it. And so they'll tell me what the baseline is that they need in order to make the move and come to my agency. And we track all of that in our CRM. So we always know where the stuff's coming from. Once their referral book of business gets big enough that it meets that need number, I make them a job offer and then they come work at Florida Risk and I hand them the book of business that they've referred to me over the last 12 to 18 months, right? So they walk in and I'm cash flow neutral. I don't have an investment in that producer at that point because they've already been referring business and I've had the revenue, the benefit of that revenue without having to split with them. Which the next question is, well, why wouldn't you give them a referral revenue? Well, because I've been giving them referrals and they've not been splitting theirs with me. They've been making <laughs> plenty of money the whole time, right? Right. So that was that's not even what the issue is. And so if you step back and think about it and you look at the fact that it takes about 18 months at a bare minimum for this to cycle all the way through, think about all the things that happened in those 18 months. How many times have we met? How many times have they gone on new business appointments with me? How many times have I gone on new business appointments with them? I, they've heard my value proposition. They hear how I pitch. I hear how they pitch. I see how they interact with their clients. I've basically been interviewing that person for four or five months before I ever even bring up the opportunity. So that's why they stick. I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm getting garbage. I already know it. If I do make a mistake, 100% on me. So I, I tell you that because that's the way we farm to get producers. It's not that there's, you know, People are attracted because yes, I do get calls, right? I get calls, I get emails. People read the blog, they 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 see me speak at an event, they listen to the podcast or whatever else. One hundred percent of the time, those never will work out, right? Most of the time, they're in another geography and they want to try and work remote. And I'll refer them to a friend of mine who has an agency in the area, and there's not been a single time that one of the people who have reached out has ever stuck. It's always the one that I go ones that I go and find myself. Right. Yeah, it's um that was a really long answer to your question, man. Sorry. <laughs> I think it's a great formula to be honest with you. And and it, it does show uh the effort involved with trying to seek out, you know, key people that are interested in growing in the industry. I think in my my situation appeals to a lot of producers that are having their books, probably wanting to uh reach another level of production and may not see that possible in the facility they're in, but the book of business, you know, with, re with respects to piracy, 
The other element is the relationship where the relationship can also get um, more or less divided because you have where the account is at, you move to another organization, you know, your book should follow with you. Or let me rephrase it, the ability to move the book with an amicable approach approach between your principal and yourself can be made. But it always needs to be made on the front end, though, right? That has to be made before you ever take the job or before the principal offers the job. Number one, because there's no emotion involved at that point. You can have a business conversation. Nobody's pissed off. Nobody's leaving because they have a better opportunity somewhere. There's no animosity from the agency principal at that point. You draw the contract up for whatever the agreement's going to be. Both parties sign it, and then you go on about your business. And then when the day comes that you want to leave and do something, you just whip out the paper and you've got a binding legal agreement that was agreed to when you were onboarded. There should never be a question about that. And it sounds to me like listening to you that you've not had the benefit of working for firms that think that way and are willing to give you that opportunity. But I can tell you, brother, down here, that's commonplace. That's what the expectation is. It, producers yeah. wouldn't go workplaces if they didn't have that ability. You're right. You know, the, the, the profile of an agency and even those agencies that exist that are in that practice possibly may not have adopted those principles in order to retain their talent. So that is a, but I believe that, you know, you have a core group of, of talent out there that possibly should understand or not know. And even if these things are unenforceable, you still have, you still have. Well, the, the non-compete, the non-compete itself is unenforceable. The non-piracy 100% is. And the problem that you run into with that is not just that it's enforceable against you. It's enforceable against whoever hires you if you decide that you're going to start trying to move business around and you have an agreement in place. I've seen agencies get sued because they hire somebody and they knew that that person had a non-compete and the agency ended up having to pay out in addition to the producer getting sued. So number one, if you're an agency principal listening to this and you're hiring producers from already inside the industry, you need to make sure you ask the question, do you have a non-compete, number one? Number two, you need to ask for a copy of it. Number three, you need to let your attorney review it. You're not an attorney. So that's how that part of it works, right? Like there is no real debate over whether or not non-piracy agreements work. It's a matter of, okay, we're going to put this into effect, but if we have the ability to come up with an agreement on how you're going to vest in ownership in your book, and have the ability for first right of refusal or whatever, then that would obviously supersede any non-piracy like that. But right, you know, and and I would think the the where it becomes a challenge is even if you have an agreement that you're describing in place, the ability to follow through on it has also been a struggle as well. And I've heard this 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 being a, a, a consistency all around in our region. So even if even if you have it a place where you have ownership in your book after a certain amount of years or a certain amount of revenue, whatever's been agreed upon, you know, when you decide to uproot and leave, you know, the, the property of all of that material of your book, the agency still doesn't release and they don't have to, but they can, you know, amicably say, okay, well, you know, on aspects of your contract, we won't enforce or we'll let go because we know that you're going to go after your book. There, there is some, um, still some ambiguity. I understand you say it's binding, but I do believe that um, 
agencies still make it difficult for producers to move on to other organizations for whatever reason. I've seen this not only on a regional level, I've seen it amongst, you know, even smaller regionals and as obviously in the national level. I've heard but I think some of that too. I'm going to be devil's advocate here, man. I think some of it falls on the producer's shoulders. They didn't negotiate a good enough deal for themselves going in. If you've got a legal contract that says this is how this is going to happen, the agency is required to release all data pertaining to the accounts within X number of days and all of the stuff that follows through that. Again, spell that all out on the front end. There really is no wiggle room at that point, right? I don't experience it for one reason and one reason only. I refuse to hire producers that already have experience in insurance. That's one of the reasons why I built my model the way that I did, because I'm a firm believer that the overwhelming majority of the people that are producers that are out there looking for jobs aren't producers. Otherwise, they'd be stuck where they were. Good producers either stay where they're at because they have a good deal and they have golden handcuffs, or they end up leaving to start their own agency if they're entrepreneurial enough. But very rarely do you find a good producer that doesn't have partner status in an agency or doesn't leave and go start their own agency because they feel like they can do it better. I'm not saying that every producer on the street is a dog, but I'm just telling you the overwhelming majority of the people that are actually in the talent pool inside our industry that want to come work as producers, they can't produce, man. That's why they're looking for a job. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that's a good point, you know, with respects to negotiating that up front, I think the ability to know what's negotiable up front for producers going forward is critical. I, for sure, did not know what was negotiable up front, you know, and I think that that can also be communicated with future producers. You know, I think that when I moved my book, you know, if I wasn't a producer, I know that for sure, you know, my agency wouldn't be fighting over those accounts. So I know for certain those accounts bring in significant revenue. That's probably why they're still fighting over it. But but the point is, though, is that negotiating those terms up front, I think, can safeguard a relationship in the event that someone wants to leave or, or, or in, in your case, probably wants to start their own agency. You know, I, I think that that's a good point because, again, I'm speaking to the fact that I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about the incoming producers who are seeking commercial insurance as a career path. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I think the thing is, there really are no rules as to what can and cannot be negotiated, right? It's like I tell producers all the time, if you want the order, ask for the order, right? If you want something, ask for it. If you don't get it, figure out what your fallback position is or don't do the deal. But you're never going to know what you can and can't get in life if you're not willing to ask for it. And I think that's one of the things that makes me fairly effective at the point of sale is I don't care how much money's on the table, what the size of the account is or anything else. I've got ice water running through my veins. I know what the business case is, and I'm going to ask every time. There was a time in my career where I didn't have that level of confidence, and I'd get my plow cleaned left and right. You know, I'd go in, a a prospect could sniff that out. Oh, this kid's young. He's wet behind the ears. He doesn't seem like he's overly, you know, confident in what he's doing. Once I got it through my head, I belonged in the room, and I went in and I conducted myself that way. Guess what? I closed way more business, and it was absolutely nothing to do with my skill set. Nothing changed other than my mental perception of myself, right? And it's even in the intro to the podcast, I'm talking about myself when I talk about get it through your head, you belong in the in the meeting. Prospects already validated your existence by agreeing to spend time with you. Get in there, crush it, close the deal, right? That's in the intro to our podcast. It comes from me being in the parking lot of an account that was $750,000 in premium the first year that I was a producer and I was physically, physically ill, not wanting to walk in. And I'm like, what the heck are you doing, man? 
you got a $750,000 opportunity in front of you. And you're not willing to walk in and go get it. Get yeah, out of here. I love that. I love that intro. Cause when I listen to your podcast and I hear that intro, I think that rings like that's very relevant to the lifestyle of a producer. I, I definitely, I've been on both sides. And when I hear that, I realized they already validated you. Now it's just a matter of you asking for the order, you know? And so I was about, I think I was early or late twenties when I negotiated a contract with the prior firm. So I was not well-versed with respects to contract negotiations. And why and would you be right? Yeah. Why, why yeah. would you be? Yeah. So now fast forward now, you know, 10 years hence, I, I definitely would know how to do that going forward, but I didn't, I'm speaking to the one, you know, the, 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 the younger 20s that are out there wanting to be in a commercial insurance because it is a great career path. But this is the other part of it that I think we don't speak enough and we kind of generalize it and kind of don't make exactly exact reasons what's negotiable, what's non-negotiable. And I think that should be communicated with those producers going forward. Well, I mean, here's the you thing, know man, it because you're, what's that? A, a lot of newer producers don't even know it's available, right? They don't even know that that's an option. So we can check that off the list because now they do. If they listen to this podcast, they're going to know everything that the, at least the two of us have, have thought through and have discussed and all of that. So there's at least a resource out there for them to hear whether or not they go get it is on them. But again, if you're, if, if, if they're not listening to podcasts and reading blogs and checking out YouTube content and things like that from people who have already been where they want to be, again, they're just not, they're not an effective producer to begin with, but the people that are out there consuming the content, by all means, people make sure you've got a good deal. You know, it's not, it, you can literally ask for anything. In my opinion, Everything in life is negotiable to a certain degree. Commission splits for new and renewal, book ownership, book purchase price, you know, equity in the agency, all of that stuff. You need to ask what, what you, you know, who the agency principal, you know, that ask that agency principal where they stand on all of these issues. Because if they don't agree with the way that I think across the board, I have to ask myself, am I really willing to concede this one thing? How important is this one thing that I want? Am I willing to concede it or am I willing to walk away from the opportunity? Here's your number one problem. And I know people are going to get pissed when they hear me say this, whatever. Producers are whores, period. Producers are nothing more than glorified prostitutes who are out whoring themselves out to get the next deal, period. And it doesn't change when they go to get a new job. They want to get the deal done as quick as they can. They're looking for what kind of money they can make or whatever base salary, but they never, ever think with the very, very rarely do they think with the end in mind and work their way backwards. The best producers I know, know the end game. They know the end game for themselves, for the agency, for their clients in terms of when they engage with the client, they know where the client wants to go. And they think, I've got another client who's already been there, and I've been with them through that whole process. Let me help this person re -eng reverse engineer their risk management program to figure out how we get from where they are to where they want to be. But they always know the end and work backwards. It's the people that start pushing their way forward and have no idea where they're headed that just flounder around. And you know what's crazy? In this industry, you can make a lot of money floundering. You could literally have a book of business that's a, a three, four hundred thousand dollar book of business, and with a reasonable commission split, make a hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand dollars a year. And guess what? They get satisfied. They're good with that. 
I'm never going to be good with that. If you tell me that there's more, I'm going to go for more. I'm never going to be satisfied with what I have today. The day I stop growing, the day I stop achieving more than I did yesterday is the day that it's time for me to hang up, hang it up and be done. Yeah, that was a that was a clear uh, decision being made early in my career. If you if I wanted to just chase business and write it and move on, or did I really want to be an advisor and attract middle market to larger accounts? And that decision was made kind of in the middle of my career, where I decided I wanted to attract and and work with larger accounts. And when I started to do that, and then I understood if we bring in this type of account, how will our staff respond? How will they manage a, an account that's 200k? You know, you know, in premium, folks, not revenue, but but you know, 20 to 50k, even 100k revenue. How does our staff manage all of that? Because I know I'm not by myself. And when I started to kind of think of that from a holistic approach, I started to write some of the more sizable accounts as opposed to my first five years in the business where I was writing general liability for roofing contractors. You know, I I, I didn't have the the mindset of a well-rounded advisor to my clients. And, and rightfully so, I didn't appeal, you know, those, those accounts weren't attracted to me and I wasn't attracted to them. It wasn't until later on that I realized there's so much more to this industry that you could bring to the table if you think this way. And, and I'm thankful for that because o- over the years, I definitely got a knowledge from the prior organizations, from a technical expertise. My thing was is, I wanted to move my book and have the liberty to do so. But in the time that I negotiated those contracts, I wasn't as well-versed as, as the folks who are listening to this podcast will become as they negotiate terms that are within reason. You know, I'm not looking that a, a producer should just take their entire book and leave the agency for nothing. I, I, absolutely not. That's not what I'm promoting. I'm promoting the fact that the relationships are strong with your clients and, and your agency is strong because of that as well. And so it should be something very amicable to be worked out in the future if you decide to uproot and leave. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, it, it shouldn't be an issue, right? You don't leave without reason. Right, right. It's not like, it's not like hey, everything's going great here, but I just feel like, I feel like just taking my book and going somewhere else to try it over there and see if it's as good. That's not how it works. You know, usually it's something happened or you're not getting the support from a service standpoint, or you don't have the technology that you need, or you don't have the third party resources that you need, at least in the middle market. Right. Cause if you know, that's the one thing my producers and my, my whole team can never say, they can say a lot of things that I do that upset them, irritate them, whatever, but they can never say that they don't have every tool they need to be successful. And that's why they don't leave, right? I don't care. You know, if Kyle told me tomorrow he wanted to take his book and go to another agency, I would be devastated personally because at this stage of the game, I consider him to be one of my closest friends in addition to my team member and for all practical purposes, business partner. But if he wasn't happy or I did anything at all that that led to that, I would like to think that we have a good enough relationship that he would come to me and we would it would be very, very clear that it was not going to be reconcilable or anything first. Everything that you talk about or that you've been talking about with regards to producers wanting to be able to take their book to me boils down to one main thing. And that is the fact that the guys and the ladies who sit in my chair don't listen. They don't communicate. They don't listen to their staff. They don't listen to production. 
Um, I think that it's very easy when a producer gives you reasons why they're not hitting their numbers for me to immediately dismiss that and say, it's just a bunch of excuses. You just need to make more calls, you know, knock on more doors, whatever else, when there may be a really valid reason there, but there is a very well-defined gap between the generation that's on their way out and the generation that's coming in right now. And it's that problem's not been solved, man. I honestly think that if agency principals were just open and honest in their dialogue from the time they bring somebody in for a first interview throughout the entire time they're there and they share everything with their team, good, bad, or ugly, you're going to have the right culture, man. But if you hold everything close to the vest and you don't listen and you want to, you want to just chalk it up to excuses or whatever else, your best people are going to leave and go work for somebody else. And they're going to be wildly successful with somebody who's willing to listen to them and is able to check their ego at the door, take that feedback and make the changes necessary to make the agency better. I don't make any decision in my agency unilaterally, not one. I think that from a leadership perspective, I don't think it's difficult to evolve, especially if you know that it's going to create direct impacts with your revenue to your organization, good or bad. And that uh, divide that exists, that it divides in all industries. But since we're in the insurance industry and you got producers that are that are here that probably, you know, may or may not want to start their own agency and may or may not want to be partners. They probably just enjoy building their books of business. And hey, there's plenty of people. out. Listen, man, there's guys I know that have never had an agent. I, I think usually the good producers end up being partners anyhow, because it's not like there's any extra role in that. It's just more assets on your balance sheet. But to your point, when it comes to leadership and having to manage other people and everything, there are a lot of producers that are perfectly fine without any extra responsibility at all. They just want to come in, produce, do their job, make their money and be done with it. Take nice vacations, drive nice cars. You know, it's a lifestyle gig for them. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Right. There, right. There's agency principles that are that way, too. They have their agency because they know what the lifestyle is they want to live. And that's the one model that they can get that lifestyle is in the agency, ag- independent agency, or actually, I mean, it doesn't have to be independent, but in an agency owner's model. Producers are very much the same, but um, no, I, I do. I agree with you. I think that that, that is the case. Some people want to be a career producer, come in, write business and be left alone. Right. And I think that that's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. And so there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. You know, so I, and in in my case, and I speak only to myself, I just never wanted to be told what a limit limitation was. If I wanted to write something like a hundred K revenue and and then try to double that the next year, I was turning to my agency principal for the historical knowledge. How can I achieve that goal? What type of strategy do I need to implement? And it can't just be one avenue there obviously has to be like in your own podcast thing you can't be a one-trick pony you have to nope. have five tools in order to be successful so I, that, that. I need to re-record it man it needs to be seven now five isn't enough seven. anymore so <laughs> if i turn to my principal i'm gonna say he is the most knowledgeable man or woman and i'm gonna say can is there something that i'm missing here in order for me to achieve that goal and that hc principal has to be honest you know with with where they are as an organization and is, does that fit within the, the, the culture, you know, well, maybe, maybe John, maybe 200 K revenue per year isn't, we don't have the the engine for that. Maybe you you need to find that he also, or she needs to be honest with that reality. And I believe I faced that intersection met multiple times with the prior organization. 
And, and I'm just being honest. And I think there's, there's producers out there that face that same reality. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, I, I don't disagree with that at all. Yeah, it's a, it's an important thing, you know, and, and I'm not I'm not someone that's going to know everything about it. I'm, I'm, at one point or another, I enjoy going out there. You know, they say, what keeps you in this business? Sometimes it, it is the revenue, but it's also the people, your clients who, who you more often. Yeah, more often than not, for me, it's the people because, you know, I've got clients that I've represented for almost 20 years at this point. They're some of my best friends. We travel together, go on vacations. I know their kids were at weddings and funerals and graduations and everything, not because it's the right political or business move, but these are relationships I truly value. I do think that you know there are, there also is another issue with the insurance industry as a whole. It doesn't exist in the circles that I run in, but it exists in the industry as a whole and that is we're like this. We want to hold everything close, man. It's pretty it, it's not very common that you will see producers from different agencies in the same city get together for lunch and have a conversation and talk about what's working and what's not. You automatically think that that other producer that's out there is your mortal enemy and it's your job to destroy them on the streets. At least that's what I think, right? When I first got into the industry, everybody who didn't work and even the people who did work in my firm, they were all my competition. If it, I was going to go out and it was me against everybody else. And that's how I operated. That's not a healthy way to operate. I think one of the other reasons why this topic doesn't get broadcasted enough is because as producers, we do a really bad job of making friendships with other producers. We view it as we have to be um, enemies because we're competitors. And that's not the case with me. I can tell you going back 15, 20 years, I knew who the agents are in Tampa or were at that time that were good agents. And if I happened to stumble across one of their accounts, I wouldn't go in. We had an, we had a handshake agreement and I know that there was reciprocity on their end and we would get together and we would shoot the breeze. And I wouldn't tell them every single secret that I had. I mean, I had to keep some of this stuff, but it's healthy conversation to hear what other people are seeing on the streets because it makes your own game better. You know, I look back at it. it I grew up playing baseball. I played baseball my whole life. And I look at it like this. My dad traveled a lot growing up. I didn't have a dad that was in the backyard to play catch with me every night. So I threw the baseball, I threw the tennis ball up against the wall in our carport. To, and I had my pitching square taped on there and everything just to practice throwing the tennis ball into that square every day. Did I hone my skills? Yep. Did I do okay? Yeah. But what I really did, I really want somebody to be throwing the ball with me that yeah. could see how I was, you know, releasing it and give me some constructive criticism, have conversation along the way. It was nowhere near as boring and mundane when I threw the ball with another human being. And I think that too many times producers are the kid throwing the tennis ball as opposed to having a catch in the backyard. Yeah, it's a struggle. Um, you know, I learned early on that you know, this business is bigger than me. And, and I learned that there's a lot of knowledge out there and it's just a matter of picking which one you want to model after. And I think you can learn from just about everybody. And once I embraced that, it, it directly showed in my sales, the way that I wrote business, who I wrote business with, what underwriters I did business with, the dialogue that I would have, I learned from the veteran producers, not just in the agencies I worked for, but in the in, the, in around the community as well. But you're right. You know, we don't we don't open up with our business practices like we should in order to be better with the community. 
you know, to speak to your point about producers kind of, you know, right in the business and moving on, you know, I, I wish, you know, it wasn't that way. I wish that we would be more of a consultant model or we, you know, I feel like I am, but right. consistently across the industry, because I believe that that would directly impact our business practices, how we write businesses, how the clients perceive us, um, how they approach us. You know, once in a while, I still get a phone call that says, hey, you know, can you quote us? And I'm like, well, let's do a discovery first. I want to know what you're all about, what's your business, before we can see that if we're a good fit for each other. Because I want to know that we're going to grow five, 10 years down the road. I don't want to write you because we have a great one program that's very affordable for you. I, I mean, I wouldn't want to do that. If they would want that, but I wouldn't, you know, because right. they went up our, our book. So I'm glad we're having the dialogue today, but it, it's it's an important part of our industry that probably should be discussed often and should be encouraged often uh, in our business. And it is to some degree, but probably should be on a consistent basis. I think there's a lot of people who say things out loud because it's the right thing to say, but in their heart, they don't believe it. And so they never execute. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it. And we need to do it, man. I mean, that's, that, that's where, that's where my head is. I know too many stingy agency principals who somebody else extended grace to for them to get to the position that they're in. And they have a real bad problem with amnesia because they forget how everybody paved the way for them. Now that they're in the seat, they're not giving back to the next generation or the next two generations. And I just simply am not willing to stand for that. That's not how I'm ever going to operate. Well, I'm, I'm just seeing it, you know, a consistent dialogue of we're trying to find new producers or trying to attract new producers. But you just spoke to something that was actually critical. Like, how are you going to get new producers if you yourself aren't opening up to, to, to improving and getting better? So I, you know, we, there's tons of struggles, but at the same time, I still love the business. I still enjoy the industry. I just, you know, I think that it's an important subject matter books of businesses, not competes, you know, how do I negotiate my contract up front? You know, I didn't know that. I was 29 years old when I joined that firm. <laughs> I didn't know. Well, you, you know, and the thing is, you're, you're, you're making a life decision to go work for somebody or with somebody. And, you know, psychologically, even if you did think about it, there's some level of apprehension to asking the question because you're concerned you're going to offend, right? Right. You know, you don't want to say because because the last thing anybody wants to do is talk to the person who just made them a job offer about what happens when you're ready to leave, right? It's right. and so there's a there's a posturing that needs to happen and all of that. And I mean, again, it's as, it's as simple as being able to set the table correctly. And I would have no problem having that conversation. I would just say, look, you know. I know that it's never going to come to this. I, I fully intend for this to be the last job I ever have. However, I am a risk manager for a living. And I want to make sure that my risk is protected. And I do have a risk. If for whatever reason, this doesn't work out, I want to have the confidence and the comfort in knowing that there's a governing document that protects both of us. If that person's not willing to do that, you have no business going to work for them, Right. Right. There's nothing, what I just said is not offensive. It's not threatening. And there's no reason you shouldn't be able to have that conversation if it's presented that way. It's a professional conversation. The it thing is. is that you're saving time, you're saving a lot of time because we both agree that building a book, there's no way around it. It's hard. It takes three years. You could try to cut the time in half, but that's almost, it's, it's almost hard to do. 
three years solid to rebuild a book of business just to get it up and running, you know, and to do it, you know, I'm doing it again, a third time. You got to think, you know, the time invested, I would rather try to figure out a way to save my time. That's why I just did it for myself. Time number four. Now I don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, you're good. (laughs) Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Good deal. Well, listen, man, we've been going almost an hour. I want to be respectful of your time and I am stacked today. So we're going to wrap up anything in closing. You want to make sure we get out that we haven't covered before we wrap this thing up. No, I, I appreciate you having me on your show. I definitely listen to it. I, I, I encourage others in our industry to continue to listen to your podcast. It has really great content. And thank you. Well, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. And by the way, you're here because you asked for the order, right? I did. <laughs> I did. Thank That's you. That's awesome, man. I hope you have a great week. Keep killing it out there. And hopefully this isn't the last time we talk. I hope to catch you soon. Absolutely, David. I will definitely look forward to the next one. All right, brother. Take Cheers. care, man. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com. <laughs>